make sure I turn this microphone on. I've had occasions where I preached an entire sermon without a microphone. But nonetheless, testing. All right, let us pray together. Father, we invite your presence to be with us now as we open up your words. We ask you, dear Lord, that you speak to us as we are willing to hear you now. I pray and ask you, dear Lord, that you take the preacher out of the way, that he interrupts not that which you intend on speaking to your people. I thank you, Lord, for this great privilege and this great honor. We pray in Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. On three separate occasions, I, I remember, and thank you for reading our scripture, um, I, three, there are three separate occasions that I can think of in my mind where I've been in situations that were scary. The first was I was on my way from Indiana uh, to Michigan here, and I was driving my 1999 Chevy Malibu, and I was on the highway and I was in uh, Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana, about to make my way into Michigan, when all of a sudden, while I was driving 75 miles per hour, I remember the feeling that I, that I felt deep down inside as I, as, as I put my, my, my feet down on the gas pedal and realized that I was losing speed in the car. I was in the fast lane, and my speedometer, I was watching it. It was going from 75 miles per hour down to 70, down to 65, down to 60, and my, my foot was on the pedal. But nonetheless, I wasn't going faster. In fact, I was going slower and slower. My car was literally dying on me on the highway. I remember the feeling. I, I thought, what was going to happen now? What is it happening to my car? I have no money to fix the car. And here I am driving to, to Michigan on my way from, from Indiana, and here it is, my car is about to die on me in the middle of a place that I've never been before. And so here I was, in the car, I'm thinking, I prayed once, and I said, Lord, get me out of this situation. And I pushed the pedal harder, but nothing happened. There I was, the car was just slowly dying, and I remember pulling over to the slow lane, my car was going about 40, and 30 and 20, and all of a sudden it was just dead. And there I am sitting on the side of the road, waiting in my car, thinking and praying like, what is happening now? I called AAA because I had an account with them. A good friend had set me up, and so they came and towed my car for me to, uh, to the nearest uh, auto shop. And just sitting there, what had happened was my fuel pump had gone out and my car was not getting any fuel, so therefore it had no power to go forward, and so here I was sitting in a dead car. I was so, I was so out of it and so, uh, so, so upset at the experience that I remember eating Chinese comfort food. <laughs> the other situation was I, went, I was in Philadelphia, and in fact, uh, this, these situations were when I was driving. I was in Philadelphia, and I remember driving down uh, the street in my grandmother's car. And now, it was not my car this time, it was my grandmother's. She had a, uh, a Honda Accord, white, beautiful car with a spoiler in the back. My grandmother used to love, she still loves driving fast. Um, but I remember driving this car, and right out as I was driving, someone pulled out in front of me and literally cut me off while I was driving. 
And I was driving this car, had nowhere to go, and ended up on the sidewalk in my grandmother's car. And there I was again, and you, as you can imagine, I prayed, Lord, get me out of this. <laughs> and nonetheless, I ended up back on the road and everything was fine. You think about it. What do you do when you're in situations or moments like those where you realize that you have no power to deliver yourself? Where you find yourself in a situation where you totally are not in control of the situation. You see, I could have pressed the gas harder. I could have steered the car even more. But nonetheless, the car was not going to go forward. In this situation, I tried my best to get out of this guy's way. But nonetheless, I ended up in a, in a worse situation because now I was on the sidewalk and other people were now in jeopardy. What do you do in situations like those? What does a man do when he's surrounded by circumstances, when he's surrounded by difficulties, or when he's surrounded by enemies that seem to, to make life difficult for him? When life circumstances seems rather hopeless and not hopeful, what then should a man do if he finds his back against the wall and he's at his end? What does he do? In most cases, he prays. Where can a man find solutions to his problems? And where can a man look for deliverance? David was one who had plenty of experience when it came to trials and tragedies. You remember David, when he was suspected that he was to be king over Israel, you remember what happened to him almost immediately. His life was turned upside down. His entire world was shifted. David, who was a lowly shepherd, back at home was now a fugitive being pursued by Saul. David had enemies. The moment he was destined for the throne, destined for the crown, his life was being sought after. He had become a fugitive, dwelling in caves. Moment after moment, David's life was spared. And David was one who experienced what it meant to be delivered by God. Even then, when David finally ascended the throne, his own household turned against him. Even Absalom, David's third son, was against him. And David, again, was a fugitive. David's story is a story of trials, tragedies, blessings, curses. But one does not read for long without realizing that David was a man who experienced deliverance. You remember when David was finally in front of his greatest battle ever with Goliath. When he was talking to those who were on the top of the hill, looking down into the valley and seeing this man defying God, and David approached King Saul and mentioned his experience. What qualified him to challenge Goliath was that he had experienced deliverance before, and this was deliverance from a lion and a bear. God delivered him from those things, and now he was ready to fight. God delivered him from Goliath that day, and Goliath, that great giant, fell as David used one single stone. God delivered him. God saved him then from the wrath of King Saul, and then God saved him at other times. All of these experiences made the lowly shepherd into a man after God's own heart. Have you ever prayed for God to get you out of a trial and not to get you through the trial? Am I the only one who do that sometimes? Like, Lord, this is too hard. I cannot bear it. Can you get me out of this situation, please? Or those awkward moments. Do you pray in awkward moments, too? 
where you realize that you've said something that you should not have said and realize that, oh, this is a bad situation. I wish that I could sink through the floor right now. And you realize that even if you close your eyes, you're still present and the other person is still looking at you. Experiences, they teach us a lot. Promises, they teach us a lot too. And the Bible, the word of God is full of promises, isn't it? God's promises are given. Then God allows trials to ensure that the person that is receiving the promise is better suited to trust and love the promise giver. You see, God gives promise, promises, but he also allows trials. But most importantly, when God allows a trial, the person going through the experience learns what it means to be saved, what it means to be delivered out of that situation. So going back to my story, when I realized that my car was dying on me, I prayed. I said, Lord, I need your help. And I remember walking in, I shared a story before, I remember walking into this auto shop, I had no money, remember, I, I, I was dead broke, and I, I remember thinking, what's going to happen now, as they have my car working on it, wanting to fix it, and they're now telling me that it's going to cost me $700 to fix the car. I said, Lord, it looks like I'll be sleeping in Indiana tonight. I don't have any money. I had my debit card on me, and I decided that I would, I would run uh, a, a risky operation with the bank. I decided that regardless of what, I was going to swipe that card and see what would happen. At least in my thought, I said, what, what's the worst that could happen in this situation? If the card is denied, then I don't have a car. <laughs> and so I had them swipe the card. Confidently, I felt I had money in the bank. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the banks too. And so they swiped the card. I remember how it felt when they said the transaction went through. And I was able to get my car, and I was on my way, back, on my way to Michigan. The other situation, I remember the moment the road was clear, and I was finally able to get back on the road from off the sidewalk. And I, I remember praying and thanking God for getting me out of that situation. Now, I was scared, not because of the accident, not because of what was happening, but because of my grandma. I thought, what would my grandmother think if there was a dent in her car? She loved that car. I was going to be in a lot of trouble that day, and so God delivered me. Amen. John Patton had a more interesting story. My story pales in comparison to John Patton's story. He was a missionary in the South Pacific. He was on an island. He had dedicated himself, his life, to serving those who were in need of the gospel message. And one night, the native people became hostile to John Patton and his family. So one night, every single person gathered around his house with fire in hand, ready to set his house on fire, and ready to see this missionary run out with the intent to kill him and his wife. And that night, John Patton realized what was happening, and he knelt and prayed and asked the Lord to deliver him. He was terror-filled. His wife was brokenhearted, the thought that this was it. We had given ourselves to the mission field, and now it's time to pay the price with blood. And here they were, shut in their house. They couldn't leave. The natives outside, ready to set the house on fire. But yet still, as they prayed, they prayed the whole night through, and nothing happened. When daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers had left. A year later, the chief 
from that very tribe was converted to Christ. And so John Patton had an opportunity to talk to this chief. And in the conversation he had asked, why was it that you did not set my house on fire? And the chief responded with these words. Who were all those men surrounding your house? Patton knew that he did not have guards that night. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he saw hundreds and hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords. And so he did not set the house on fire. Angels delivered that family that night. Can someone say amen to that? To me, that is powerful. God is a God of deliverance. God often delivers his people. Psalm 62 is a perfect example of deliverance. So for the next couple of moments, I want us to observe Psalm 62. Psalm 62, by the way, I apologize, is not in your reading this month. Psalm 61 is in your reading this month, but I had to go a page over. This psalm is so beautiful, so lovely, full of life. All the psalms are full of life, but this one speaks powerfully to us. It is a perfect example of a man who loves the promise giver. You see, David was given a promise that he would ascend the throne. But David had fell in love with God, and it was a meaningful relationship. David had his moments where he made mistakes, but nonetheless, David's life is a lot for us to learn from, has a lot for us to learn. The life experiences that David had made him not only a capable writer, but it also made David a mighty preacher. Psalm 62 is not only a song, it is a powerful sermon. This psalm is a sermon in itself. If I were to read it to you and sit down, it would be sufficient. That would be enough. But the sermon has very mighty things to say to you and I today. When God gives a message, it is first given to the preacher before given to anyone else. This psalm is an example of that. Psalm 62, verse 1, David says this, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my what? Again, deliverance. But notice that David is preaching this psalm to not your soul or someone else's soul, but who? My soul. In other words, David's focus in this text is himself. Psalm 62 and verse 5, the Bible says this. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. Who again is David talking to? My soul, his soul, himself. One has said that whoever seeks to preach to others must first learn to preach to themselves. Who delights in preaching to others without speaking to themselves is a, is a man who looks at himself daily but never notices his flaws. David is one who is likely to preach to himself. David, over and over again in the book of Psalms, often takes himself aside and speaks the word of God to himself. How many often come to church and hear a powerful, mighty sermon preached, and after the sermon has ended, conclude, I wish sister so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. Or I wish brother so-and-so was here to hear the word of God. It was preached and it applied to him directly. But seldom do we say, that sermon was for me. 
And here it is. David is speaking. David seems to have set up a pulpit in his own home. David had set up the pews. And the one speaking from the pulpit was the same one sitting in the congregation. David speaks to himself. My soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. It is important for us to remind ourselves daily where salvation comes from. Because it is likely for a man to forget in his moment of trial and, and tribulation and tragedy. It is for a man to often forget that his salvation comes from the Lord. How often have we tried to deliver our own selves? We forget that God is the deliverer. There are many who take the counsel of others and yet neglect their own counsel. They say, friend, silently wait for God, yet still impatient when it comes to the will of God in their own lives. Then there are others who say, friend, you ought to trust in God, and yet they themselves do not have that which is needed most in their own lives. Then there are those who say, friend, you should exercise, but yet they don't exercise. Friend, you should eat better, but yet still they don't eat healthy. I shall get off that topic now. <laughs> there are many who come to church, they hear a sermon being preached, and then go to deliver that message to someone else who should have been here to hear it. But yet still, they themselves have not applied it. They say this message was tailor-suited for this person, but not necessarily myself. Or we read the Bible and we say, Lord, that is so powerful, I need to share this with my husband. Or I need to share this with my wife or my good friend. My mother should hear this word. But seldom do we apply to ourselves. David says, my soul. David focuses on his innermost being. That is where the message should concentrate and penetrate. There are too many people who study the word of God, but they do so in the context of surface reading. They read it, they say that is powerful, but nonetheless, it goes no deeper. It goes to the mind, but not to the heart. It goes to the ears, but nowhere else. They say, instead of my soul, my ear silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. But it ought to go deeper. My soul silently waits for God. Now notice that David, in speaking of salvation, mentions the word waits. Why is it that oftentimes when we find ourselves in situations, we often pray and all of a sudden deliverance doesn't come immediately? There's a waiting period sometimes. What do we do then? We shall answer that question later. David goes on. Verse 2. He only is my rock and my, what is the word that is repeated again? My salvation. He is my, ref, my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. David is writing this psalm in context of what was happening in his life at that time. He goes on in verse 3. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you. Like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies, he says. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly, he says. So David 
was experiencing what most of us or a lot of us experience a lot of times. David was experiencing what it feels like to be mistreated by others. David was realizing that his enemies were consulting among themselves to cast him down from his position. They delight in lies, he says. But then verse 5, he again speaks to himself, my soul, wait silently for God alone. It's interesting that the soul often, and I'm talking about a being, don't imagine the spirit floating somewhere, the being is often impatient when it comes to God working for them as it relates to deliverance. But not only that, how many of us silently wait for God? We wait for God, but with loud speeches. Lord, you ought to deliver me. I shall wait, but I will tell you how to do it. Lord, you ought to deliver me, but I shall tell you when. Yesterday was the day. Lord, you ought to deliver me, but I shall tell you who you need to bring into my life who can bring deliverance. Lord, I've been waiting for that special person for a very long time. Is that the one just showed up in pew number five? Lord, I will consult with you to tell you how to deliver me. David says, my soul waits, but not only that, silently for God. But then he outlines not only that he waits for God, but God alone. From my expectation, verse 5 is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. David mentions a few things here in the book of Psalms, chapter, the book of Psalm 62. In all of its chapters, you realize that David mentions the word my about 16 times. In other words, the entire chapter is dedicated to David himself. And it's as if we get the chance to now view what David is actually saying to himself. My soul. He only, verse 6, is, what is the next word? Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. You notice that David is personally writing before us. This psalm is so full of David. Have you ever thought about how powerful it is when someone gives a testimony of what God has done in their lives? And how often when someone gives a testimony, we begin to think within our own selves and say, man, God has not worked that way in my life yet, but I look forward to it. David, in Psalm 62, is giving us a testimony. From him comes my salvation. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. For my expectation comes from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. Psalm 62, verse 6, I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. David had realized that every single thing he needed was in his God. My God. Such a personal word. God belonged to David. 
David belonged to God. Those who would be delivered by God must first realize that they ought to belong to God. God, in working for a believer, is interested in not delivering a stranger, but a man that is known by him. You think of Daniel. When Daniel was praying, the angel Gabriel came and said, Daniel, you are a man beloved by God. Daniel, remember, one day was in Babylon. He was captured at the age, most scholars say, of 18. When Daniel was brought to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne. But then another king came along, and Daniel had grown old by this point, and Daniel was now being pursued by his enemies. Daniel had received a high position in the court. He was above the princes, but some were jealous of his position. You know the story. And so they devised a plan. They say, we cannot find any fault against Daniel, except it be concerning him and his God. And so the plan was, let's ask everyone in the realm to worship no other except the king. And so Daniel now was in trouble, they thought. If Daniel prayed for 30 days to any other except the king, he will be thrown into the lion's den. But you know what happened? Daniel did not think for a second to do other than what he had done prior. He was still willing to pray to his God. And Daniel prayed how many times a day? Three times a day he bowed the knee and prayed to his God who sits on the throne that is higher, much higher than the monarch than ruling the world. Daniel had prayed and God understood that his man was now here in this empire, in this place, praying to him. And here it was that they had thought they caught Daniel praying and now this was the end of the man of God. Daniel found himself in a situation. He was trapped and Daniel needed deliverance. So here he was in Babylon. This time the Medes and Persians were ruling and here it is Daniel in his old age is now being thrown into a lion's den. My imagination takes me elsewhere now as I figure, as I think about Daniel as he was being grabbed, pushed, and moved along as if he was now again a slave. Daniel being pushed as if he had nothing to offer to that kingdom. Daniel being treated roughly as one who was a breaker of the law. And here it is. Daniel, the den is opened, the lions ready to devour the man. They threw him in. And what happens? He was delivered that day. God sent a mighty angel to close the mouth of the lions. And Daniel was saved. Daniel was delivered by God. God takes pride in delivering his children. And therefore, David writes, salvation is from my God. Psalm 62, verse 4, again it says, They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. The faithful man of God must realize that no amount of curses can cast him down from his position if God first wants him there. He must realize that salvation does not come from any other except it be from God. And if God has placed you there, then no one can take you from it. 
A faithful man of God realizes that there's only one thing that he can do, and this is what David says in Psalm 62, verse 8. The Bible says in Psalm 62 and verse 8, Trust in him at what? All times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust in him sometimes. Is that what it says? No. It says all times. Whether it be you are high up or whether it be you're low. Whether it be you're happy or sad, the Bible says trust in God at all times. Surely, David goes on in verse 9. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they're weighed on the scales, they're altogether lighter than vapor. In other words, no one is more powerful than God. When everything is weighed, no matter how much money a man may have, he still turns out to be vapor. It doesn't matter the wealth that he has amassed over time. It doesn't matter the, the power he has now gained for himself, even if he is the president of the world or king of the world or the president of a nation. A man has no power. He is but vapor. Do not trust, the Bible says in verse 10, in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. You notice what David is doing to you and I. David focuses on the heart over and over again. Psalm 62 verse 1, he says, my soul. Psalm 62 verse 5, he says again, my soul. And then he outlines the importance of pouring our hearts out to God. The heart of a Christian must be in the right place. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not what? Set your heart upon them. David, before now, in verse 8, says, pour out your heart before him. In other words, a heart that, is, that has already been poured out to God has no room to be poured out in riches or in the world. A missionary was once sent to a location. In that location where he was sent, there was an old car that was to be used as he was to travel from place to place. The old car was made available, and he went to this school near his home, got permission to take some children out of one of his class to help him with this car. Now, the problem the car had was that whatever, whenever he wanted to drive this car, he would get in the car, sit down, and turn the ignition key, but nothing would happen. Car wouldn't start. So the missionary figured out that the car needed a jump start, so he would often gather people around him to push the vehicle. So his students were now the people doing it. Often he gathered them around his car, and they pushed him along as he started up. As he made his rounds, he would either park on a hill and leave the, or leave the engine running when he was meeting with someone. He used this ingenious procedure for two years. How many years? Two years. He thought, I had finally figured out what the car needs. It needs a push. It needs to be parked on a hill. And that's how I'm going to start the car. And this he did for two years. He finally got sick and was now back home with his family. And a new missionary was assigned to that very same station. 
And that very same car was given to this new missionary. When the new missionary began his work, he decided, you know, I wonder what's going on with this car. I'm going to take a look under the hood. Before the explanation was complete, this new missionary went under the hood and looked and saw that a cable was disconnected. And that's all the car needed. He gave the cable a twist, stepped into the car, and pushed the ignition switch, and the engine started. Imagine a man working with this car, pushing and working hard for two years, and all he needed to do was to connect the vehicle to the power source. How many times have we as Christians work hard and push our vehicles along, only to realize that all we're missing is the power source? God is that source. The power was there all the time. The only problem was that there was a loose connection. It was there all the time. But the only problem was there was a loose connection. Now our title today is God Has Spoken Once. This is where we find ourselves in Psalms, chapter 60, Psalms, Psalms 62 verse 11. God has spoken how many times? Once. David then goes on. Twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. It's a very interesting concept for David to say, God spoke once, but twice I've heard. What's interesting about this passage is that David is banking on the fact or thought of repetition. God does not need to speak but more than once. You know when God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. God didn't have to repeat himself. Let there be light again. God said, let the dry land appear. He did not have to repeat himself for the dry land to appear. He simply said it and it was done. Psalms 33 in verse 9, the Bible says, God spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Here it is. David says, God has spoken once. But nonetheless, twice I have heard. What is it about mankind that they don't hear it the first time? I can tell you stories upon stories where my dad would speak once and I heard twice. Where he would say, son, this is what I need you to do. I need you to take this for me up to the store and deliver it to uh, this person, and he would give their names. I would take the thing from his hand. I heard him say it once, but on my way to the store, I saw my friends playing cricket. And often, often, I would join the game. I remember on one occasion, he had given me some money to deliver to this person at, at the store, and I remember going to play cricket. And I remember how I felt inside my heart as I realized that the money he had given to me I had lost while playing the game. My dad spoke how many times? Once. Here it was now I was stuck. I searched for hours upon hours for this money that he had given to me to deliver. I felt my life was in jeopardy. I had lost the money. I knew that he had worked hard to get this money. But nonetheless, I had played and lost the cash. My father was a merciful man, but he also had power. 
And so I came into the, into the home, into the house, and I said, Dad, you'll never guess what happened. And I always start, you know, on the, the side of mercy, you know, pleading with them. Lord, uh, Father, you know, I was going up the, uh, the, the, the street, and over on, the, you know, as I was walking up on the, on the left side, I saw, and I would list the names of my friends, because I would often want to incriminate them too, you know, put them in the story, in the situation. I say, you know, we were, they were playing cricket, and then I was walking by, and then they pressed me. They said, Jermaine, come and play with us. I said, no, I got to take the stuff from my father. And it often seemed that I was on the right side, you know. I'm taking the things from my father, and I'm busy. I can't play cricket now. And it almost sounded as if, I, when I was explaining it, as if they tackled me and invited me and pulled me in to play the game with them. But my dad could see through it all. And time and time again, I would walk out of that house realizing that my dad need not repeat his commands. But I felt what he had meant when he said deliver. You know... God does not need to speak but more than once. But that which God speaks has content. For David says, this is the thing that God has spoken but once. The Bible says, going again, Psalms 11, Psalms 62 verse 11, that power belongs to who? Humanity and God has always been in a power struggle. We often forget who has the power. When we find ourselves in situations that demand deliverance, we often implement, first of all, our own power. And we say, God has said this, but this is what I will do. God has spoken but once. All power belongs to him, especially when it comes to deliverance. But how many times again have we heard these words twice because we have attempted to deliver our own souls after God had said, I will deliver you. Abraham is a perfect example. God had spoken once, I will give you a son from your wife, Sarah. What did Abraham do? He got himself another wife. And then God comes again, and the very same words were repeated. Abraham did not listen to what God had said. David is talking about something that is often repeated, not only in the lives of Abraham and others, but our lives also. We often forget that God is the one who has the power. But not only that, God is not only a powerful God, but he's also a merciful God. And that's what it says in verse 12. Also to you, O Lord, belongs, what is the next word? Mercy. And that is something that Christians often forget too. We forget that God has power to deliver, but we forget that God has mercy. We think of God as one who is all too powerful, who has no time to listen to yours and my prayers. I'm going to give you an analogy that I think does fit in, but yet it's an imperfect analogy. Think about it. You're driving down the highway once, and as you are driving... You are in your car. You are listening to some good, sacred Christian music. You're the only one in the car, and you're happy about the place you're going. Your destination is set. Your GPS is running, and you're looking, you're gazing. You've probably lost track of how fast you were going. 
And as you're driving, you realize, as you look in your rearview mirror, that there's a police officer driving down behind you. Now, no lights are on. I don't know if this just happens to me, but sometimes when I see a police car behind me, I often look suspicious. Not because I have anything in my car, anything illegal, but just the thought that a police officer is behind me makes me feel uncomfortable. And so I begin to look around my vehicle. I hope there's nothing weird in here. Or I begin to feel uncomfortable. I check my speedometer. I ask myself, first of all, how fast were you going, young man? Did you break the law or not? And what's surprising, I remember I was driving, uh, this one occasion, I was driving from, uh, this was in Virginia, and I remember this police, I was driving, I was in the fast lane, and I was driving, and a police officer was, drove up behind me with his lights flashing. And I said, mercy, here it is. I'm now getting pulled over. Why me now? And so I pulled over to the slow lane, and pulled over to the shoulder, only to realize that the police was after someone else, and not me. Here I was, parked in my car, waiting for someone to walk up to my window. But his purpose was not, his intent was not to pull me over, he was after someone else. How often do we approach God the same? We see God just as one of power, and the reason why we fear, I believe, police officers, is sometimes we realize that in those situations we have no power. When you realize that you're speeding and a police officer shows up behind you, in that moment you realize you have no power to get yourself out of this situation. You say, all you can say now at this point is have mercy. Have mercy on me. And sometimes they do and other times they don't. There are situations where I begged for mercy and it didn't work. I know people who have cried and asked for mercy and it worked. I didn't try it, but others have, and it didn't work for them. But here it is. God is a God of power, but he's also a God of mercy. It is for us to remember that when God has spoken once, that which he speaks is for us to always remember. That he has all power, but he also has all mercy. God is a God of power, but he's also a God of mercy. That is what we need the most. In closing, I want to give you an example of power and mercy. I shared this with you briefly before, but I was driving, uh, I'm sharing this again because this materialized into something else. I was driving down, um, anyway, forgot the, the road. Anyway, I, the short of the story is I ran a stop sign. Ran a stop sign, police officer pulled me over. I was late for an appointment, and I thought, Lord, that which I need now is deliverance from this, wonder, from this gentleman. Didn't know who he was, but I prayed. I said, Lord, please help. Couldn't afford a ticket. I prayed. And God worked it out, and I shared with the officer that I was, uh, and it's very ironic, and pardon me, there's a moral to this story, and the moral is, I'm going to share that later, but nonetheless, very ironic, I, sh I said to the police officer, I am one of the pastors at the university church. Here it is, a pastor breaking the law. You know, we, are, we need help too, pray for us. So here it is that I'm sitting in my car, he's looking at me and he says, don't worry, this won't take long, because I explained to him that I was late for an appointment with a good friend. 
And he went to his car, checked my, my plates and everything, and instead of giving me a ticket, he gave me his card. And he gave me his card and said, I would like to invite you to do a ride-along with me. And so he invited me, instead of, instead of getting a, a ticket, he had mercy on me. I'm going to use the word mercy. He had mercy on me. He had the power to give me a ticket, but he used mercy instead. But mercy went beyond that because he invited me not only to, uh, he did not only pardon me, but invited me into his space. So I've been doing ride-alongs. And I never really realized this before. But for the first time in my life, I realized how much police officers need Jesus. All of my life, I have thought, these men are out to kill me. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't mean that in a bad way, as in they're out to give me a ticket or they're after me somehow. But here it is that, that someone had given me an opportunity to, to not, only, not only see it for myself, but, but to sit in that seat and, and know I was not in the back because pastors would be in trouble if I were in the back seat. You would, you would hear a lot of rumors. Pastor Jermaine, I saw him driving by the other day. And I don't know what happened to him. Do you know what happened, brother? Did you hear about it? I think he's on his way down to the precinct. But, but, but here it is. that, that I, here, I, here it is. He's given me an opportunity to, to, to sit down and talk with him. And so the first ride-along that we were able to have, I sat in his car, and the first thing he asked me was, why do you go to church on Saturday?" So almost for an hour, we were talking about the Sabbath. Here it is that God has given me mercy enough, an opportunity for me to share the truth with someone who I feared. And not only that, after we, after we had ended, it was not too long, we, I, he invited me to come again. And just yesterday, I spent about three hours with this wonderful friend. And we were talking again. And we talked about everything, from ranging from, you know, how to manage money, all the way through other aspects of faith. And after, I was, after we were done and he dropped me off to where my car was, he said, you know, Pastor, I appreciate you so very much. And I cannot tell you how much God has done in my life because you were here. Here it is, I'm sitting in the very car <laughs> that I was afraid of. You know, and, and again, it's, it's interesting because you would, add, you would probably think, how in the world you could be afraid of the very people you used to work with before? Because I used to work with police officers, and God had just worked a miracle. So I'm, I'm asking for your prayers because God has not only delivered out of a situation, but God has given us an opportunity to have a window into the community in a whole different way. And it's interesting because to me, as I'm sitting there as a pastor, I'm often faced with questions like, what do you think I should do with this person in front of me? Should I give them a ticket or should I extend mercy? I have no power to give a ticket. But God has given me, allowed me the privilege as a pastor to speak mercy on behalf of others. And so here it is, a, a situation where mercy and power is blended together. 
And I believe fully that God is going to work miracles in this community. I, I fully believe that because this itself was an answer to prayer. God wants to deliver us. And the way in which he does that is to our own surprise. There is more to that story, but I would rather share that later. In closing, the Bible says in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, I remember praying once and I said, Lord, Michigan State is a large university. I remember praying, I said, Lord, East Lansing is a large community. Okemos has over 40,000 people. East Lansing has more. I forgot the number. But I said, Lord, that's a lot of people to reach. And I figured that in time, if allowed, it is possible to reach this community. Because God has set this church up as a light in this neighborhood. Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, the Bible says, Ah, Lord, behold, thou hast made the what? You've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. God has all power, but he has all mercy. Is there someone today who has things in their lives that they're saying, well, God, I know I, 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 at this moment I need mercy. I need forgiveness. Or someone else who is in a situation where they need deliverance and they say, Lord, I need power. God has spoken it once. It's in his word. He has both. And both he offers to you and I freely. Will you now claim that promise? There is power and mercy. You know, there's a song. There is power in the blood. God has all power, but he also has all mercy. If that is you, I invite you to stand and claim that beautiful promise found in Psalm 62. God has spoken once. Even though I have heard it twice, it is true. He has power, but he also has mercy. Mercy that he freely gives to all of us. I pray, beloved, that we expect nothing else from the world. That our expectations may not be found in men and what they can do but that we may plead and ask God to do the impossible. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, you have all power. That is true. It is spoken once. Once you, you spoke, everything happened. But also we understand that there is mercy. On Calvary's cross, both met each other Justice and mercy kissed each other. You are the ultimate judge, the one who has the power to execute judgment on all. But yet still, you are the originator of mercy. And today, Lord, we come before you claiming both because we cannot deliver ourselves. Salvation doesn't come from our own works. It simply comes from you. So we ask that you extend that power to deliver us now. We ask you, Lord, that you also extend mercy to us who are in need of it. Help us to see that you are doing marvelous things, not only around us, but also in our lives. Thank you, dear God, for, all, for answering our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen.